felt pretty good about that. Um, and so we're going to get into a text. You know, I, I just want to um, uh, share through the book of Ezekiel today, chapter 37. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, and I want, also want to share a little bit about my story and how this text has impacted me and, and my whole family's life. And so Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to return there in a moment. If you have your Bible, you can hold your place there and uh, we'll come back there in a moment. And so uh, before we uh, get into our text today, uh, would you mind uh, bowing with me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for grace and mercy, which is new every single morning. Thank you for your loving kindness and your forgiveness. And God, as we come into this place, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move on our hearts. May scripture come alive in us as I teach Would you bring anointing? Would you bring power? Would you bring clarity uh, to our hearts and our lives? And and God, may we be transformed after hearing uh, from Scripture. And so I pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified in this place. It's in Christ's name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Uh, One of the things that I'm I'm pretty proud of is I come from a very large family. Um, I come from a family where I have six uncles, I have six aunts, and I have a tribe of cousins. And uh, one of the things uh, that's uh, that's cool about having so many relatives is the unique personalities that you come across. And one of my uncles in particular is one of these personalities. My uncle's name is Jujo. Can you all say Jujo? Jujo. Uncle Jujo. I just love me some Uncle Jujo. So Uncle Jujo would walk with his Pekingese dog named Sugar around the neighborhood every single morning. Jujo and Sugar. But this walk was more than just for exercise. This walk was more for just for Sugar to do her thing. You see, every morning my uncle would go out and scan the neighborhood looking for stuff that people would throw out. The things that people thought were permanently broken, whether it was TVs or radios or fans or furniture, I think we all have that one relative who's just scanning the neighborhood looking for other people's junk. But when, other, when Uncle Juju and Sugar walk around and scan the neighborhood, they would find these items before the garbage man came. They would find these items and they would bring them back to their home. And, and Juju, because he was good with his hands, he would bring these things which people thought were permanently broken he would bring these things back to life. And as I was reflecting on my uncle and his little Pekingese dog named Sugar, I considered the spiritual life and thought about Christianity. You see, because in many ways, God is like my uncle Jujo. You see, every day God scans the world. Every day God scans our hearts. Every day God scans our relationships, looking for the things that everyone thinks is permanently broken. Looking for the things that everyone thinks needs to be uh, permanently lost. And God looks to recreate these things and bring them back to life. But when it comes to our life, it it is so easy to live with a sense of resignation. It is so easy to live as if death has the last word. It is so easy to give up on ourselves, to give up on our family, to give up on our relationships, to give up on the things in life. It is so easy to look at our lives and to believe that death has the last word. But when we consider the gospel and when we consider Christianity, we see that this doesn't have to be the case. As a matter of fact, one person said, speaking of the gospel, that when Christ came, Christ came not to make good people better or or bad people good or good people better. When Christ came, He came to make dead people come alive. 
When Christ came, He didn't come to make good, bad people good or good people better. When He came, He came to make dead people come alive. And so the question that I want to uh, you know, wrestle with this morning is what does it mean to follow a God who brings life out of death? What does it mean to follow a God who brings life out of death? And it is here with this question that we come to Ezekiel chapter 37 beginning in verse number 1. This is the word of the Lord and this is what it says. It says, The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Say to these bones, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will breathe in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and you will settle in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. That's some good stuff right there. Now, as we look at Ezekiel, we see that Ezekiel was a prophet and a priest who was part of the group which was deported to Babylon uh, after Jerusalem was conquered. And, and this was a tremendous, tremendous blow for uh, the, the Jewish people. And so when we pick up in chapter 37, all seems lost for the people of God. They have come to the point in their spiritual journey where it seems lifeless. The life that they once enjoyed with God and their homeland is lost. You see, at one time they had reason to live. At one time there was joy. At one time there was, there was dancing and festivals. But now their celebrations have been turned into lamentation. Their dancing has been turned into mourning. And for the people of Israel, there is a major shift in the way that they experience life. And so God brings Ezekiel to this valley. Because this valley is the perfect picture of what their lives look like. And for many of us, the valley is a very good picture of what our lives look like. And God speaks lessons to Ezekiel about what Ezekiel can learn about God. And, and, and I wanted to share a couple of lessons with us this morning. You see, the first lesson that the story teaches us is that God's powerful presence is in the valleys of our lives. 
God's powerful presence is in the valleys of our lives. If you scan through Scripture, one of the things that you find unique about God is the places where God reveals Himself. God has a way of showing up in the strangest places. And in this text, God makes His presence known in the valley. Now, we have to see this because this valley is, is, is not a valley with nicely manicured grass. This is, this is not a valley clothed with tulips and flowers. This is not the place where you want to take your family for a photo shoot where everyone wears khaki pants and white shirts and jump at the same time and get dead. Gotcha. This is not the place. This is not the place. No, th- this is a valley which is dark. This is a valley which is desolate. This is a valley which is cold. It, it, it's 9, 11 times 10. And it, it's not the valley of the shadow of death, as you hear in Psalms 23. It is the valley of death. This is the worst possible place that Ezekiel can find himself in, and somehow God is there. And for the people of Israel, their lives felt like the vision which Ezekiel saw. Because in verse 11, we get a snapshot of of some of the common sayings that were going around. In verse 11, to express their pain and disappointment, the common saying was, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we have been cut off. This This is the song of the nation. These are the phrases that they were saying at the grocery store. This is the phrases that they were saying at the water cooler. This is what they were updating their Facebook status with. My bones are dry. My hope has been cut off. We have been abandoned. Whenever you would see someone at this time, you say, how's it going, man? My bones are dry. Have you ever felt dry before? My, my hope is gone. Have you ever lived without a, a sense of hope? And, and, and have you ever just felt like my hope is gone? I have nothing to look forward to. Have you ever felt, they said, uh, the worst part of it all is we have been cut off by God. Have you ever felt cut off by God? That everyone's being blessed and everyone's prayers are being answered except yours. Everyone has a girlfriend except you. Everyone, you know, everyone is, is feeling great but you. Everyone's parents are wonderful. No one's dishes get dirty. No one's kids are crazy except your family. Have you ever felt that God just cut you off? That you're alone and broken in isolation from God. And as we look at our lives, many of us have our own valleys of dry bones. We have our circumstances and relationships and life situations that leave us broken and falling apart. We have families. In this room, we have families that have been shattered by betrayal and abuse and addiction and adultery. We have experienced loneliness. Everyone in this room, at one point or another, has experienced some kind of loneliness that feels like death, a depression that feels like dry bones. And sometimes we look at, around at these shattered relationships and look at our own lives and look at our crushed dreams and crushed hopes and we assume that this is the end of the story. But this chapter pushes us to see that God's powerful presence is in the valleys of our lives. For some of you, maybe you have experienced incredible heartbreak. Someone just broke your heart and you have interpreted this as being cut off from God. But Ezekiel pushes us to say, in the midst of that valley, God is there. For others, you've been, you know, maybe you're trying to make ends meet and trying to afford, you know, coming to the school. And it's like, you know, I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to stay here. And you're just interpreting this as God is cutting you off. But the reality is Ezekiel is pushing us to say, in the midst of that, God is there. 
For some of you, 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 you've hit a wall and you've been trying to hear God's voice and your prayers have been going up, but nothing has been coming back. And you're wondering, has God cut me off? And Ezekiel is pushing us and pushing us to say, in the midst of that, God is there. All these things which have left us angry and bitter and resentful at ourselves and at people, and, and Ezekiel is pushing us to say, in those dark and desolate places, somehow, the mysterious presence of God is there. And this is why we gather at chapel, and this is why we gather on Sundays at church. We don't gather just to connect with people, but we gather to be reminded that in the deep, dark places of our lives, somehow, someway, God is present in them. In your sick body, somehow, God is present there. Your parents got a divorce, and some, in, in, in some inexplicable way, God's powerful presence is there. The lowest moments of our lives. And, and what Scripture over and over is trying to get us to see, is trying to get us to see God's powerful presence in the worst of our situations. And most of the time in Scripture, people are just missing God's presence, like we do. This story in, in Genesis 28, where this guy named Jacob, and, and Jacob had a brother named Esau, and Jacob's always tricking his brother. And, and, and I, there was a time where Isaac, the father, had a blessing for them. And, and Jacob made believe that he was Esau and received the blessing of his father. And a few moments later, Esau walked in looking for the blessing, and the father said, no, I ran out of the blessings. I don't have any more blessings for you. And at that point, Esau was enraged, so much so that uh, their mother went to Jacob and said, your brother is comforting himself with the idea of killing you. I mean, that's really bad. I mean, it's all about dysfunction. Your brother is comforting himself, consoling himself with the idea of killing you. And so Jacob leaves, and, and he's isolated, he's alone. And there comes a point where, where he, he, he receives Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder, an incredible vision of God. And, and Jacob realizes when he wakes up from the vision, he says one of the most profound verses in all the Bible. He said, after incredible visions and incredible dreams, Jacob said, God was here. And I didn't even know it. God was here. And I didn't even know it. And for many of us, we're missing out on the powerful presence of God because we have interpreted our situations as God being absent from us. But in reality, in, 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 in a mysterious kind of way, God's powerful presence is there. In the low moments of our lives, God is there. And this is why, for me, I, I always talk about contemplative spirituality. Contemplative spirituality is, is really just slowing down our lives to be present with God and ourselves and others. And, and to be contemplative is to slow down our lives so that we can pick up the movements of the Spirit of God in our lives. Even when everything seems desolate, even when everything seems broken, God somehow is there. But Ezekiel doesn't stop there. There's, there's one more thing that uh, Ezekiel teaches us through, through this passage. And it is in this text, the lesson that we have is that it is God's powerful presence that brings resurrection. Not just God's powerful presence is there, but it is God's powerful presence which brings resurrection. Because God is in this valley. Resurrection is possible. What seemed like it was permanently finished, God brings the newness of life. Now, at this point, remember, the, the land is conquered. Families have been separated. Women have been raped. Children have been killed. And one would think that this is the last chapter in the history of the people of Israel. 
But despite what looked like the end of the game, God shows up. And, and, and what stands out to me in the story is, is that resurrection comes when Ezekiel partners with God to bring life to the bones. Now, Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel to walk back and forth among the bones. And, and then he asks the prophet a question. He goes, can these bones live? And then God tells him to prophesy to the bones. Now, we've got to get clear on something. In high school, I, I failed biology. I failed science. I failed chemistry. I, I mean, it was not a good thing for me to go to high school. Uh, but one thing, uh, so, so I'm not an expert at all when it comes to like, the human anatomy at all. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not the best person to talk to. But it is a well-known anatomical fact, okay? That although ears have bones, bones do not have ears. I know we're treading deep waters here, okay? So stay with me. <laughs> although ears have many bones, bones don't have ears. To preach to bones is more futile than preaching to the deaf. Now, if the valley was slain with recently, you know, it was filled with recently slain corpses, and, and I, I would have a lot of faith to say, okay, yeah, I, see, I still see the ears, God, you can do it. But God tells him to prophesy to a valley of dry, scattered, desolate bones. In other words, he invites Ezekiel to collaborate with him to bring life to a place that cannot get any worse. And through this act, God is trying to get Ezekiel to see the potential in these bones. For many of us, we look at our lives and we see no potential at all. But God sees an incredible amount of potential. And what, while Ezekiel sees scattered, lifeless bones, God sees an army. When everyone else has given up on God, sees potential. And it's interesting, I came across a New York Times article some time ago that, that covered a, a documentary on a prison in Louisiana. And uh, the prison is called Angola Prison. And it, it's the largest state maximum capacity uh, prison in the United States. It sits on 1,800 acres of land. Which, to give you perspective, this is larger than Manhattan, okay? This is their prison, larger than Manhattan. And the place has been labeled the bloodiest prison in America. The average sentence is 88 years, okay? 88 years, this is the average sentence. And uh, the average, 90% uh, of the inmates will die in the prison. And so for many years, this prison was the valley of dry bones. And then there was a man named Warden Kane, a warden who came, who was a Christian man, and he started exercising just incredible love and discipline towards these inmates. And Although it was filled with men who had done incredibly horrible things, the warden decided that he was going to treat these men with dignity. And so one day the warden sat down with the prisoners and he started eating their food and he realized that this food was like garbage, that he, was not, he would not eat this food. And so the, the warden decided that I, the prisoners will not eat anything that I wouldn't eat. And so he changed their meals. He started inviting these chaplains to, uh, to plant churches in the prison. As a matter of fact, they became so successful in the prison that they started church planting in different prisons around the country. What people thought were incredibly broken, desolate, God is bringing to newness of life. There are more than 120 inmates that have earned theological degrees at this prison. 
When everyone thought this is the last, death has the last word in this place, God is saying, no, 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 no. I want to bring resurrection to it. God's powerful presence is in the valley of dry bones. Some of you might be asking this morning, you know, can God really bring healing to my past hurts? You might be asking this morning, can God really reconcile my family? Some of you might be asking, can God really give me a joyful life? Can God really heal my body? Can God really rescue me from my addictions? And some of you might be in a place of despair and God sees incredible potential in you and God wants to breathe new life into you. Now this text here is very significant for my own personal history and my family history. You see, I I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I actually grew up in a uh, pretty far from that uh, my father was quite skeptical of the church. Uh, he was a weekend alcoholic, and, and he, had, he was just skeptical and, and didn't trust any kind of pastors at all. And so he wouldn't go to uh, church whatsoever. My mother was more of the moralist, though, she, because she didn't drink and she didn't do drugs and she didn't hang out. She didn't think that she had a need for God or for church. And so they wouldn't go to church, but every now and then they would send me to church. And uh, they would send me to church with my aunt or my grandmother. And, and I, I don't think they were sending me to church because they wanted me to get, like, you know, spiritual disciplines or, or meet Jesus. I used to go to this storefront Spanish Pentecostal church. We had four or five hour services. I think she just wanted a break. And so she would just send me, you know, over and over. Go to that church. Yeah, that one. The one with four or five hours. That's the one you should go to. I need a break. And so I would go to this church, you know, at five, six years old. I would always come out as like, I was always the lame man doing like a Christmas play. That was my role, the lame man or the blind man. I mean, I don't know how I ended up in those roles, but that's just who I was at these plays. And so for five or six or seven, I would go every other week or so with my family to this church. And, and it was very difficult for me to go to this church because growing up, I didn't understand too much Spanish. And so, uh, and so I believed that, you know, Jesus was Puerto Rican. I just thought, I just, just thought Jesus, they called him Jesus. I mean, everyone talks Spanish. I was just like, and to this day, I believe that Jesus is Puerto Rican, okay? Uh, and, 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 and I just, that's all I got from it, that Jesus was Puerto Rican. And, and so, I, I, by the time I was about 12 years old, I said, you know, I really don't want to go back to church. And my parents said, you know, like, you don't have to go anymore. This is fine. So at that point, it was like salvation came to me. It was like, no more church, this is awesome, okay? No more church at all. And so, at 12 years old, I stopped going to church. And by, by 17 years old, I, I found my back in the church somehow. I just happened to be dating a pastor's daughter at 17 years old. And I would tell you, that will get you back into the church. Uh, the pastor's father said, uh, the, the, the girl's father said, the, uh, the only way that you can date my daughter is if you come to church. And so I was just like, oh, this is horrible. You know? this, is, this, is, this is terrible. And so I would, you know, while he was preaching, you know, I would sneak into the back of the church at the last, you know, you know, five or seven minutes of the service, and I would sneak in and sit in the back. And at the end, he would go, "Hey, Rich, what did you think about the sermon?" I go, hey, "The sermon was awesome, Pastor. Because what was it about? It was about Jesus. It was about the Bible, the Holy Spirit. It was awesome. It was great." He's like, "Okay, then the week, next week I'll come. What did you think about it? It was awesome. It was about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, about the Bible, about God. It's a tremendous sermon." And so I would do that over and over and over again. And so. I, However, this relationship, this teenage relationship was pretty dysfunctional. I grew up in my home where my, there was just dysfunctional relationships everywhere. And even though uh, my girlfriend, uh, parent, uh, parents were in a church and leadership, their home was dysfunctional as well. And so we just replicated what we saw. 
And so uh, as teenagers, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, I'm in this relationship. I'm investing everything into this relationship. My, my heart, my soul, you know, my $20 bank account. I'm just really investing <laughs> everything into this relationship. And it came to a point where this relationship was just broken. And it was just one of those where, I, you know, I, I'm just in it for three years. I mean, teenage years, that's like, got to be like 15 years. You know, I'm in it for like three years and investing everything and just broken. And, and one day on a Sunday, uh, uh, it, it, I was walking home because this relationship had ended. And I'm just like, you know, just nobody knows. One of those singing one of those songs here. And, and, and I get home all like mess. I just want to cry. I just want to go home. And, and, and I see my father. I walk into home and I see my father. And he's coming off of a hangover, and he's, he's watching uh, you know, a football game, and he's just sitting down. My mother's cooking in the kitchen. And so I walk in, and the house is, is you know, it's empty, and it's just weird. So I go, you know, you know, where's my brother Jason? Where's my sister Laura? Where Michelle, Melissa? Where's everyone? And says, oh, they're in church, which is pretty foreign. It's like, you know, no one goes to church in my family. So it's like, this is weird. Why, why, why are my siblings at church? And they said, oh, some, some evangelists came, and they, they, told, they invited them to come, and, and grandma invited them, so they decided to go. And so I went to my room, and I, and I said, you know what, I, I think I, I just want to go to this church, and you know, I, I don't want anyone to pray for me. I just want to cry. I just, I, just leave me alone. I just want to cry. I just want to give me my corner. I just want to cry, you know. And, and so I, I said, you know what, I told my mom, just, I'm going to go to church. And they said, okay, go. So I got up, and the church was right around the corner, a little small Pentecostal storefront church, the same church I was the lame man in, the same church I was the blind man in, I went right back into that church. And so that, that weekend, they were having some kind of revival service, and so I walked in, and the church is incredibly packed, and, and it's just filled, and people are dancing and singing, and not quite what I was looking for, I, mean, I was looking for my little corner, but I just went in anyway. And so when I walked in, I sat in towards the back of the service of the church, and about ten minutes after I walked in, I see my father walking as well with my mother with him. And, and my father came in with, get this, he came in with, you know, a Mets jacket, a tank top underneath, pajama pants, no socks and sneakers. So I'm just like, way to go, Dad. Way to go. This is perfect. Thanks for, you know, representing our family and our neighborhood. This is perfect. So he came in, just like that. And my mother came behind him. And this was just weird, because I'm like, I, I didn't invite them. Why are they here? And so, my, and, and my, my father, this is the last place that my father would ever go. And so I, I, I walked in, and at the end of uh, the service, my father said, you know, he said, he said, you know, he said, Rich, you know, when, when you left the house, he said, something weird happened. He said, it, it, was, it was, I don't know if it was audible or inaudible. He said, but I heard some kind of voice which said, follow him. And he said, so I, I just thought, you know, that's either following God or following Rich. He's on the way to see God. So I just, you know, I just followed Rich. And so he went with my mother to go to this church. And while we went into the church and this incredible revival going on, the preacher gets up to preach and he starts to preach on Ezekiel 37. And he starts preaching about the valley of dry bones. And he starts preaching with incredible passion. And, and he starts preaching and he, and he starts saying, you know, some of your lives, you're, you're like just the valley of dry bones. Your family is like the valley. You feel dry, you feel hopeless, you feel desolate. You don't think that there's any hope for tomorrow. And he just started preaching and preaching. And then towards the end of the service, he made an invitation. And he said, anyone who wants the living God to breathe his life into their dry bones in the person of Jesus, why, why don't you just come forward? And so one by one, my, my, my brother receives, and he's like, you know, I, I just want to receive this, this breath that God offers. So my brother goes up, and 
my sister goes up and my, my twin little sisters, they go up as well. Then I respond to this invitation. And then my father responds to this invitation. And then my mother responds to this invitation. And then my aunt responds to this invitation. And then my uncle responds to this invitation. And then my cousin responds to this invitation. And then my cousin's sister responds to this invitation. And then my other cousin responds to this invitation. And so on this Sunday evening, in a small storefront church in East New York, Brooklyn, about 15 of my family members respond to the invitation to receive the breath of God. And this is about 12 years ago. And I want to tell you that everything is not perfect. Everything is not a but God has revolutionized. This is the last place I ever thought. I was supposed to be a rapper, y'all. This is the last place. <laughs> this is the last place I ever thought I would be. And yet God decides to breathe new life into the valleys which seem broken, dry, hopeless, and desolate. And this is the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity is that God has come in the person of Jesus to breathe new life into us. Not to make bad people good or good people better, but to make dead people come alive. And for, for us, I, what I want to do is I want to reflect on a question for a moment. Let me put that question up here. Where is your valley of dry bones this morning? Where is that valley? For some of you, your, your, your valley is just your addictions. You come in this place, in this room, and, and you just have addiction. And you just don't think you'll ever escape these addictions. And God wants to breathe new life into you. For some of you, it's your depression. And you've come to this place and, and just all of life, you, on the outside, you're smiling, on the outside you've got joy, but you know that you know that you feel like your life is the valley of dry bones. For some of you, it's just your family. Your family is dysfunction, your family, there's just a lot of conflict and it just feels like the valley of dry bones. But God wants to breathe life into your family. He wants to breathe life into your own heart. He wants to breathe life to those places where you have given up on so what I want to do for the next minute is I just want to take a minute. Maybe you want to journal this down. Maybe you just want to, you want to be in the presence of God and allow the Holy Spirit to just zero in into that area. But I just want to pause for a minute. And then I'm, going to, I'm just going to pray and dismiss us here. And if, if some of you want prayer, I mean, I, I'll be here to pray and I'll be here on the campus as well if you want to talk. But I, I, I just want, let's, let's just cultivate silence. God just speaks tremendously to us in, in, in silence. And so let us bow together for about a minute. As you reflect on where is your valley of dry bones? And would you receive God's invitation for him to breathe life into it? Let's pause for a moment.
for each of us have our valleys. Whether it is faculty who is here, who, their marriage is like a valley. Children that are far from you, and their life just feels like a valley of dry bones. God, for many of us as a student body, I mean, our lives feel desolate and dry and hopeless. But you are the God who breathes new life into us. And so, God, I ask that this semester would be one in which we are encountered by your breath, by your wind. That in every place that we have given up on, the places of our addiction, the place of our depression and despair, God, that you would breathe life into it this year. And God, would we partner with you to look at the places in our community, to look at the places in our city, to look at the places on this campus which seems dry and desolate. God, may we partner with you to bring life to places which everyone else has given up on. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and blow fresh wind into this place and into our lives. May this campus uh, be an incredible testimony that we were once a valley of dry bones, but we have now turned into a living ark. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You all this.